Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 14. Philippians chapter 4. If you can, would you stand? Here's the word of the Lord. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. Please be seated. Let's pray. Would you pray with me and for me? Okay? It's important. When you're praying as a church, you play a part also in praying, listening. Your amen is yes, Lord, let it be. And we pray because we need the Lord's help. Amen. All the work of studying, all these notes here, they are worthless if the Spirit of God is not working in me and in you. Amen. So, Father, as children adopted through Jesus, we ask you to feed us. Feed us. Give us food. You are a very loving Father. And you give us bread when we ask. We depend on you. Holy Spirit, we pray that would be working in our hearts. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be clear. And help the congregation to be faithful. Help the congregation to be attentive. We all... We all here will give an account for this next hour. I will give an account for what I'm preaching. My brothers and sisters will give an account for how they are listening. And that's very humbling. So we need your help. Help us, Lord. Prepare our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Two years ago, LifeWay, they they published a research that they did. And the research was to see how often or the frequency that people who profess to be Protestants, they read their Bibles. And you know, if you're a Protestant, comes from the Great Reformation and... The major issue is the Reformation was the issue of authority and the Sola Scriptura and the importance of the Word of God. So, here is the people who say that they believe in the importance of the Word of God, how often they read their Bibles. They says that a third of Americans who attend a Protestant church regularly, that's 32%, say they read the Bible personally every day. 32%. Around a quarter, 27%, say that they read it a few times a week. Fewer 
say they only read it once a week, 12%, and a few times a month, 11%. Or once a month, 5%. Close to 1 in 8, 12%, admit, admit they re- rarely or never read their Bibles. And the problem with this is, we have a bunch of people who profess to be Christians, and in a time and an age where you have abundance of Bibles, people are biblically illiterate. They don't, they, they don't know the Bible. They don't know how to read the Bible. And the consequence of that, the, the great tragedy is that they know some verses here and there. But the verses that they know are completely out of context. And once you get the Word of God out of context, it has no power. It lost its meaning. The sentence has meaning in context. But if you don't know the context, it doesn't matter how often you repeat that verse. It's not going to work. And we have been studying the book of Philippians. Have been through Philippians for a while now. And Philippians is one of those books in the Bible that make people champions in quoting verses out of context. We have an abundance of verses that people know, but they have no idea about the context. So, for example, chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. A lot of people know this verse, and they always quote the verse. How about 121? For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Or 2.5. Oh, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you. For one, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say again, rejoice. For seven, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes in mugs, moms with mugs, right? All those children to take care, and then in the mugs, the, oh yes, the peace of God. They're completely out of context, but... 4.13 I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. Or verse 19 of chapter 4 And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You see, a lot of people know these verses but they have no idea about the context. And what happens is when you get texts out of context these texts they tend to take a life of their own. Suddenly they become whatever you want them to become. And the tragedy is, there is no power. So my prayer is, as we are coming to chapter 4, verse 13, this verse, I believe all of you here know that verse. I've memorized. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My prayer is that as we study this text in context... That the Lord will transform you, change you. Because the Word of God is a sharp sword. But it's sharp and efficacious when it's used in context. 
So that's my prayer. As we are studying, that we would understand, comprehend, and that the Lord would use you to transform us. Amen? Last Lord's Day, I spent a long time here. I was telling you that chapter 4, verses 10 through 20, is a new session here in the book of Philippians. Is the last portion of the letter before the final greetings. And Paul is using this last portion to help the Philippians understand how in the kingdom of God works giving and receiving. Remember the Philippians send the, the Philippians send Paul a gift, money. But in those days, once you give money to someone and someone accepted that money, what happened? There is strings attached. Oh, you took my gift. Now you come under me. And Paul is using this Opportunity to teach them about the gospel and how in the kingdom of God we are always slaves, there must be no strings attached, and more than that, we should always be content with Christ. So I'm not going to spend more time here. Uh, the outline we saw last Sunday, verse 10, I divided in three parts. Paul is commending the Philippians, verse 10, then he's clarifying, verses 11 through 13, and then he's commending them again, verse 14. Today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14. He's commending, clarifying, and then commending. So, let's go just to review really quickly, verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And right now you know the word rejoice is a key word that keeps playing throughout the letter to the Philippians. And that's the last time that Paul is going to play this song of joy. That's the last time in the book of Philippians that the word for joy or rejoice appears. And it comes with a soprano. I rejoice greatly, immensely in the Lord. And then he explains why he rejoiced greatly in the Lord. Because now your phronel, another very important word, your pattern of thinking and feeling and acting towards me, blossom again. It's a beautiful way that Paul is expressing his gratitude towards the Lord. Notice that he doesn't say, thank you for your gift. But he applies a profound theology of giving and receiving and being Christ. So I rejoice greatly in the Lord, not because you gave me money, but because your money has shown that you have the mind of Christ. That's what Paul is doing. And now he's going to clarify verses 11 through 13. Remember, in light of all the situation, and that's why we, we, we cannot go to the Bible with our culture. We need to let the culture of the Bible help us understand what's taking place. So now Paul is going to explain more how in the kingdom of God it works giving and receiving. And Paul is a very caring pastor. He's, he's using this opportunity to shepherd the church in Philippi. It's here that people think that Paul is being thankless. It might sound like he's being thankless. Thank you for your gift, but actually I didn't need anything. But Paul is not being thankless. He's being a pastor. He's shepherding them. He's teaching them how the gospel must work in our lives. And also, Paul, we told, we told you last Sunday that there were some issues 
that Paul needs to clarify. And here, two. Two issues that Paul is fighting against, so there is no misunderstandings as he's praising the Lord for their gift. The first one is the misconception, or some people could think that Paul was saying those nice things in verse 1 to get more money. That's how some people are. Kent gives me a gift. Oh, Kent, your gift made me rejoice in the Lord so greatly. Do you want me to keep rejoicing in the Lord greatly? Let the gifts keep coming. So, that's one thing that Paul is avoiding. Because that's common. A thank you in order to get more. The other thing that Paul is fighting against is the, what he taught them earlier. He does not want them to think that he was anxious. Ten years. Ten years. A decade since they last gave Paul a gift. Paul is in prison. He needs money to pay for the prison. He needs food. He needs support. And could be that the Philippians would think that now Paul is stressful. He's just pacing from one side of his cell to the other, anxious. And Paul is going to clarify that he was not anxious by no means. But that's all he does in verse 11. See how he opens verse 11. Not that I speak from need. I'm no needy So I was not in need. I was not angry at you. Anxious that I needed something? Paul did not see himself as a needy person. That's amazing. Because if you think about with your natural eyes, think about Paul. Where is Paul right now as he's writing this letter? In a prison. In a Roman prison. Not in an American prison. In a Roman prison. He can't work. He needs provision. So, according to the natural eyes, Paul is in need, right? We all say, Paul needs, he needs new clothes, new sandals. He needs food. He needs money to pay for the rent. But you see, according to the work of God in his heart, with supernatural eyes, he sees that, I have all that I need. I have Christ. So that's what Paul says here. Not that I speak from need. So do you see how it's important for us to define need? So many people are in debt because of their definition of need. Right? How you define need? If everything that you see that's in a good deal, oh, that's such a good deal, you need that, and you need everything. So it's all about how you define needs. Oh, I need a new car. You don't have money, but I need a new car. All right, so. And then what happens? It becomes your need. So we see how Paul defines need. His need is primarily having his soul in union with Christ. His heart 
captivated by Christ. So he says, not that I'm speaking from being in need or from need, for, and he explains here, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, and that's a key word, content. Content. Paul, why are you saying that you're not in need when you are obviously in need? Because I have learned to be content. The word for content, it's an interesting word. Autarchus. From autos and arcane. Autos literally means self-sufficient. But the idea, self-sufficiency was something that the Stoics praised in Greco-Roman culture. To be self-sufficient. That was the greatest attribute that you could achieve. To be self-sufficient. But that's not what Paul is talking about, as we are going to see. The idea here is of being happy or content with what you have. To be satisfied. So when you say that you are satisfied, what does it mean? If you come to have lunch at home, and we have steaks, and you eat a lot of steak, and they say, hey, do you want some more? Say, no, I'm satisfied. It's enough. And that's the picture behind this word here. It's enough. I'm satisfied. I don't need anything else. And the Bible speaks a lot about contentment, being satisfied. It's actually the opposite of coveting, being greedy, grumbling, being ungrateful. And you know that the Bible speaks a lot about coveting, being greed, murmuring, grumbling, being unthankful. Those things are the opposite of being content. So in the New Testament, we see this word here used... Let me give you three examples. First, in 2 Corinthians 12, so we can see how Paul is thinking about when he used this word here. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. Remember, he's talking about his thorn in the flesh. With the Lord about this, that he should leave me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is what? Sufficient, is enough. Paul, my grace is enough for you. You must be satisfied with that. For my power, and notice, because these connections are important, Paul is going to be doing the same thing here in Philippians chapter 4. He talks about enough, satisfied, sufficient, then he talks about the power of God. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says, But godliness, godliness with contentment, is great gain. Oh, how wonderful it would be if we truly take to heart that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with this we will be what? Satisfied, content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, to a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into destruction. Hmm. And Hebrews 13, 5. 
the author of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from love of money and be what? Content, be satisfied with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So brothers and sisters, we have a holy obligation to be content. It's not optional. Oh, I'm so glad the master is content, but I don't need to be. No, 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 no. We all, we all have a holy obligation, a duty to be content in the Lord. So he says, not that he speaks from need, for I have learned. It's an important word and that connects to verse 12. Do you see? I have learned. Contentment does not come through osmosis. You learn contentment. And then it comes to verse 12, Paul expands what he learned about contentment by the words, I know, I know, I have learned. So verse 12, Paul is expanding verse 11. So as you're reading your Bibles, you can see verse 11, he says, I have learned to be content. And now in verse 12, he says, I know, I know. So Paul is expanding, he's explaining what he learned and how he learned that. So he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. There are different schools, different classrooms that Paul went to. Some classrooms were nice. There was AC. He had a nice teacher. There are other classrooms where the classroom was moldy, dark, Cold. And in all those classrooms, the Lord was teaching him about contentment. So he says, I know, the first thing, I know how to be brought low. And then he says, I know how to abound. You see, he's putting the two poles, the two extremes. I learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul places here the two extremes of human experience with the physical needs. Having nothing and having plenty. So the amount of provision may vary, but his contentment does not vary. Remains the same. But the first thing he says, I know how to be brought low. That's an important word because Paul used this word earlier in chapter 2. Tapeno. Humility. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then he used that in chapter 2, verse 8, I believe, when he talks about Jesus humbling himself, taking the form of a man. That's the same word that Paul is using here. I know how to be brought low. So let me ask you. Do you know how to be brought low? Do you know how to be humiliated? Some people, as soon as they have the opportunity to learn how to be brought low, do you know what they do? They get angry. They run away from that classroom. I'm going to sue you. They can never be brought low. They always have to win the argument. Never learn how to be brought low, to be humiliated. To be in a humble state. Not Paul. 
He knew very well how to be brought low. Look how he says to the church in Corinth. He says in chapter 4, To the present hour we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor. So the homeless here is not because they don't work, like most people in our society. They're homeless because they don't work. That's not what's happening to Paul. He's homeless, but he works hard. He's homeless because of all his traveling to preach the gospel. We labor, work with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like this scum, the garbage of the world. Not only that, Paul says, But as servants, as slaves of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And here's how they commend themselves. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger... That's how they commend themselves to the Lord. So we can see that this man knows how to be brought low. There are so many brothers and sisters in Christ who have been learning how to be brought low through the painful providence of God. How about this one here? Second Corinthians 11. Paul is arguing because people are saying that he was not a true apostle. Those are the servants of Christ. I'm, I'm a better one. With far greater labors. Far more imprisonments. With countless beatings. And often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Imagine that in the first century being shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers. That's what happens when you're traveling in ancient times. Robbers, animals. Danger from my own people. Danger from the Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless, sleepless night. In hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my concern for all the churches. So in these painful, miserable situations, he was learning to be content in the Lord. Paul was schooling himself as he was going through these painful situations. And we all must. When you go through a hard time, when the providence of God seems like it's hiding his smiling face, that's when you need to say, Oh Lord, help me to learn contentment in this situation. Also he says that he knows when facing plenty, And now we need to think about Paul. Paul, what do you mean by facing plenty? Abundance. Whoa! And for Paul, abundance and plenty is when he was not starving. Amen? For for Paul, to be well fed was when he was at a brother or sister's home eating 
a fresh piece of bread a fresh soup that was to be well fed for Paul I think it's embarrassing for us it is embarrassing for us to think that for Paul and so many other Christians they can be content with nothing some of us become extremely annoyed discontent when you go to the grocery store can you believe they don't have the dairy free ice cream the grass fed steak came hard this time oh no grass fed whatever organic where's my organic food just this type of toothpaste that's embarrassing it's ridiculous the things that cause us to be discontent when you think about our brothers and sisters all throughout the world and their contentment being some churches in Brazil and in Africa where they have nothing and yet there's contentment and we complain about everything but Paul says I know I know how to abound I know how to face plenty I know how to have abundance that's important because we must learn contentment with plenty sometimes we think that we can only learn contentment when the Lord takes everything away if I go to North Korea and be beaten and starve then I will learn to be content no 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 we need to learn to be content in prosperity in good times one scholar says for many of us the challenge is not to be content when we have nothing after all we have never had nothing the challenge is to be content when we have more than we need but less than we want hmm ah that hurts yes how to be content when you have more than you need and yet less than what you want let me ask you when you're enjoying God's prosperity when you're enjoying the abundance of food in your home I believe most of us here have abundance of food in our home nobody here is starving amen at least nobody looks like they're starving here when you're enjoying the good gifts of the Lord do you think to yourself Lord if you take these things away yet I will praise you yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation that's important you must think about these things some of us have an abundance of kids at home can you say Lord if there is a car accident and all these kids die yet I will be satisfied in you I will not hold against you if my spouse dies Lord a precious gift of the Lord to my life 
abundance of goodness with a godly spouse. And if you take away my spouse, yet yeah, I will be content because I have you, Lord. We need to train ourselves to do that. Because prosperity, plenty, abundance does not kill discontentment. There, you can be poor, discontent, and you think, when I have that, then I'll be content. When I get this, I'll be content. And then you get all those things and you remain discontent. Because it's a matter of the heart. Christian contentment does not depend on external circumstances. The external circumstances actually reveal the condition of our hearts. And Paul says, see how emphatic it is. I have learned, I know, I know, I have learned. What is Paul teaching us about contentment? What is Paul teaching us about contentment? You gotta learn. It doesn't come nicely packaged as soon as you get saved. You gotta learn contentment. It requires holy effort, hard discipline. You must always be paying attention to your heart. Am I being content right now? Why am I not being content right now? Dennis Johnson, he says, Christ-centered contentment is not pre-installed on our hearts like a software program, preloaded into a new computer. Nor is Christian contentment injected in a single dose as though it were a vaccine that could make us immune to a complaining spirit. It takes practice. Contentment grows over time. And here's how it grows. As we face adverse situations in finances, health, relationships, or other areas. And I think it's beautiful how he writes. And we seek Christ's strength to release our grip on His gifts while we strengthen our grasp on His grace. So we need to learn contentment and requires a holy effort, a holy wrestling with yourself, a holy battle to put to death those sinful, selfish desires. I want, I need, I need, I want. You need to learn to fight against that. And some people, some of you here, spend a lot of time learning about all sorts of things. We have a wonderful church where people are always learning, always studying. Learning, studying about cancer, about diet, about exercise, about all sorts of things. You put effort, right? When you want to learn, you need to put effort. But let me ask you, how much effort have you been putting to learn contentment? Some of us put a lot of effort in learning theology. How much effort am I putting to learn contentment? And this class is always in session. There's never a break. And we only graduate once we go to glory. Right? But there's one thing that we should never be content with. 
And Paul showed us in chapter 3. There is one thing that Christians can never be satisfied and content. Do you know what it is? Where you are in your journey into Christ-likeness. So we, we, we must be careful to distinguish between being content and being complacent. Being content and being complacent. Paul was never complacent. And we should never be satisfied and content with where we are in our journey into Christ-likeness. There's always more to grow. Always more to grow. Here's Paul, chapter 3, you saw this man, the greatest man, just holy man, not Jesus. I believe to live. And yet, he says, not that I have attained that, but I keep pressing forward. There is always more to know about Christ, to be taught from Christ. Amen? Was J.C. Ryle, he said, Never be content with a little worship, little grace, little holiness. That's not enough. And then Paul says, we come now to the great verse, chapter 4, verse 13. And here's the source of his contentment. Here's the ESV, he says, I can do all things through him. Who strengthens me? That's one of the most well-known Bible verses. I read that after John 3.16, that's the most searched verse in the, in the internet. Philippians 4.13. And consequently, one of the most quoted and one of the most well-known is also one of the most misapplied verses of the Bible. You see this verse everywhere. T-shirts, cards. Evander Holyfield, remember the boxer? When he was going to fight against Mike Tyson, he had a nice robe. And what was in his robe? Philippians 4.13. There was another NBA player, Stephen Curry. He had his Nike shoes and he had 4.13 in his Nike shoes. All quoting this verse. But the text was never intended to be beheaded from its context. Because once you behead this verse from context, you killed it. You murdered the verse. And that's what we see taking place. For words derive their meaning from their context. And people think that if I say this verse forcefully enough, repeatedly enough, energetically enough, Emphatically enough, I can do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm going to play the keyboard better than Rachel. Oh, the Bible says I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I'm going to play the viola better than Ben. Ben, you stay there, I'm going to teach you. Because I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Give him the violin. I play, play better than Hannah and Emily together. I can do in Christ. That's what people think. I can be a better accountant than Rick and Sarah. I can be a better landscaper than Tom. Brothers and sisters, stop. I could go on with a list. We could go all day with a list of things that I cannot do. No matter how much I say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because that's not the point of the passage. 
That's now Paul's teaching. And sadly, most people quote this verse when they're not satisfied, they're not content. I need to do that. That's the completely opposite of the text. It's about contentment. I have seen a guy at the gym, and Luke knows that he had a sweatshirt. And in his sweatshirt, he was a bodybuilder, was Philippians 4.13. And as he's doing deadlifts, and you can see the guy struggling. I can do all things through it. Stop, stop. No, that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Paul is saying. And I believe there are two major problems. Two major problems. One is context. Why people misunderstand this verse. First is context and the other is the problem of translation. Translation is a hard issue. Once they translate a word, it becomes almost impossible for the translations to go back and change that translation. First of all, the context. Context is important. So let me go back here. He says, especially verse 12, if you were reading Greek, you could see the repetition of the same word. We have panti, pasin, panta. So in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, we could translate in all. And in every circumstance. He's using the same word. There is a change because of grammatical structure. The panti there. Pasin. And that's why he begins verse 13 with the all, panta. So this all here, if you're reading, if you're listening in Greek, you know that this all of verse 13 is connected to verse 12. It's the all that he was referring. All the good and the bad situations that he's facing. All the good and bad situations that could cause him to be discontent. So that's the all that Paul has here. This all of verse 13 is not an all without context. There is a context, and it's clear in the Greek that this all is being connected to the two words that he used earlier. The all situations of abounding and starving. So that's important. We know that this all things is not just a general term for everything that you want to do. Second, there is the problem of translation. So we saw the, the all things refer to the verse 12. And it's amazing because most translations translate it as, I can do, do. But the Greek verb is used 27 other times in the New Testament, and it's never translated as do. That doesn't mean that necessarily it cannot be do, but it's something that we need to, okay, if the other 27 times that the same verb is used in the New Testament, it's never translated as, I can do, we should study more. Why are we translating as, I can do? Ben Merkel, 
Benjamin Merkel, he's a Greek professor, he writes, This verb does not mean to do, but to be strong, powerful, to prevail over. And here are some examples. I have three examples just to you know, burden you. But three examples of how the same verb is used. So for example, in Acts chapter 19, verse 16, you remember the demon-possessed man. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on the, on the other ones, mastered all of them, and what? Overpowered. That's the same verb. Overpowered them. Or Acts 19.20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Revelation 12, verse 8, reading verse 7 and 8. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angel fought back, but he was not able to prevail. He did not prevail, that's the same verb. So Paul is not talking about what he can do, about prevailing, having the power to prevail over the situations that could tempt him to be discontent. That's what Paul is doing. So here's how I would translate, that's how I translate this past week, this verse 13. I overpower all such situations, and that's important in translation, we need to help people to understand the text. I overpower all such situations in him who empowers me. And I'm very briefly, just to show you, briefly, uh, how I came to this translation. First, there are six words in the Greek text for this verse. First of all, we have the word there, panta. And we saw that the panta all refers to verse 12. All the circumstances that Paul is facing. Then the next one is the verb, ischio. I overpower. I have the power to conquer, to prevail. And then you have the expression in Greek, ento and duramonti, me. Ento, the end there, that's where people translate as through. But that's the same preposition that Paul used throughout Philippians as in Christ. In Christ. So my view is, why would you translate through him when it's clear that Paul has a theology of union with Christ that's in him, that he has been using throughout the letter? So in him, who empowers me. So Paul, Paul is saying that he has the power to face all the extreme conditions of life that he just mentioned, being brought low, abounding, having plenty, being hungry. He has the power to face them and not be prevailed by the circumstance of life. Actually, he prevails over them by being content through the power of Christ that's in him. That's what Paul is saying here. So, I overpower all, all such situations in him who empowers me. That's a powerful verb, playing the words here. But Paul used this, we see that Paul using this verb to empower or to strengthen. I think empower is stronger. So for example, in Ephesians 6.10, Paul used the same verb here. Finally, be empowered in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Look at that. Empowerment in the Lord. 1 Timothy 1.12 I thank Him who has given me strength or who has empowered me. 
And who is that? Christ Jesus, our Lord. 2 Timothy 2.1 You then, my child, be empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.17 But the Lord stood by me and empowered me. That's how Paul uses the same verb. And we see that the Christian life is not just a system of philosophy. A matter of worldview. Some people, they think they're Christians just because they, they, they know about the gospel. Since they're little kids, their parents are teaching them about the gospel, the Bible. So they think they know that they're Christians. Christianity is relationship with one who is all-powerful. So it doesn't matter how much you know. If your life is not being empowered by Him and being transformed, I'm sorry, but you don't know Christ. And today is the day to run to Him. Because Christianity is a relationship with the powerful one who overcame the grave and now empowers us to walk in holiness. So that's what Paul is telling us. As you can see, this verse has nothing to do with accomplishing a great task, winning a game, achieving your goals, getting an A+. The meaning of this verse is not so much about what we can do, but what, about what is done to us through Christ. Whew. So much for all I can do when it's exactly what is done in and through us by the power of Christ. So, I hope you can see the meaning of the text in the context. And then Paul says, verse 14, comes the commendation. Yet it was kind, the ESV says, I think beautiful, it was beautiful, it was good of you to share my trouble. And Paul is saying, yes, I know how to be content. Yes, I can do all these things here, I can overpower all the situations through the power of Him. But don't think, don't think. I'm a lone ranger. It was beautiful of you to share in my trouble. It was beautiful in God's sight and in my sight for you to come alongside me and help me. That's what Paul is doing. So, as we come to the end, Paul says, verse 10 through 13, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length your Christ-like thinking, feeling, and acting towards me has blossomed again. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, satisfied. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I overpower all such situations in Him who empowers me. And I would say that the secret to contentment is always to remember that God doesn't owe you anything God doesn't owe you anything God does not owe you anything you owe God everything let me tell you if your starting point is the biblical truth that you deserve hell 
If your starting point is the biblical truth that you deserve God's wrath to abide for all eternity upon you because of your rebellion towards Him, you have plenty. You have abundance of things. When hell is our point of reference, everything changes. We are always doing much better than we deserve. Amen? And the other secret. One is to remember that God doesn't owe you anything. Start with hell. That's what you deserve. And you're going to remember that everything is good. You have plenty. And the second is learn. Learn how rich you are in Christ Jesus. How much you have in Christ Jesus. The more you know Christ, the more you know the riches you have in Him. We're saying here how rich a treasure we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. Then it says we stand in robes of righteousness, we stand in Jesus' name. The more we behold Christ, the more we realize how rich we are. How well fed we are in Him. Our souls are not starving anymore. We are no longer naked before the eyes of God, but we are dressed with righteousness. So, remember what you deserve. Remember that God doesn't owe you anything. You owe God everything. And remember, remember how rich a treasure you have in Christ. Amen? And that leads us to the Lord's table that I would call the table of contentment where we remind one another as we partake of the Lord's Supper of what we have in Christ Jesus. Amen? Father, we thank You for this time where Your Word is confronting, challenging, comforting to our souls. How we need to learn the art of contentment. So help us. Help us. We need you. As we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table. Would you please. Would you please. Help us to behold. The riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Help us to remember that we don't deserve anything apart from Christ. So help us. Prepare our hearts. Help us to remove our sandals and standing holy ground. Help us to partake of the Lord's Supper in a way that is worshipful, full of awe and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.